from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, It's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today's guest is Yancey Strickler. Yancey, with two of his friends, founded a little company called Kickstarter, the global crowdfunding platform for founders that went on to become the number one network in the world for supporting and growing new creative ideas. More recently, Yancey has written a book called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. It's a great read. In this episode, Yancey chats with Comcast SVP of Community Impact, Delilah Wilson-Scott. They'll relive moments that challenged Yancey and his co-founders as they built Kickstarter and eventually how he knew it was time to move on. Yancey will also share his decision-making framework that will help you and your team build better decisions for your startup. We join Yancey and Delilah now live at Lyft Labs. I'm excited to be here today, excited to be talking to Yancey, and I can't think of a better time. Purpose has been increasingly a topic that company CEOs, leadership tables talk about, but I think in these past two weeks, people are really taking a step back to understand what, what it means. So glad Yancey's here. Um, 2009, I can't believe it was that long ago that Kickstarter was founded. Um, no, I'm, maybe... I'm old. <laughs> I'm an old man. That's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it would be interesting for people to hear just a tiny bit about what you did before Kickstarter, because I don't know that everybody knows. And then and then I want to want to go into Kickstarter for sure. Yeah, well, first, thanks, Luke, and thanks to Lila. I, you know, maybe I get to interview you some during our conversation today. I feel like uh, you would have just as much to share. Uh, before Kickstarter, I, I grew up in southwest Virginia, outside of Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech is. I grew up on a farm in the country, and growing up, I loved reading, and I always dreamed of being a writer, and I, I went to college in Virginia. And then I moved to New York afterwards when I was 20 years old and started working as a music critic. My, my first job was as a reporter for the radio. And I would rewrite news stories for DJs to read out on air. So like when a DJ would turn a news story <laughs> to like a 20 word thing with a joke inside of it, you know, I was the guy writing that. And I did that for about three years. Yeah, I was just a writer and I started a tiny record label. I was just, you know, a person excited about the world, curious about the world and, um, and living in New York City, living my dream and just trying to, you know, make cool things happen. And it was during the, that period that I made a new friendship with a, a gentleman named Perry Chen and, you know, Kickstarter began to get underway for me. And so how did you guys approach it? I mean, you knew going in that there would be some skeptics. In fact, you said that you was you were even skeptical about the idea, you know, that people would put their own money behind somebody else's ideas that they didn't even know. How, how did it really all come together? Well, I mean, you know, this first conversation was in 2005, which was a very different Internet. To have a website in 2005, you really did need like a closet full of servers, you know, and you did need a guy with a ponytail uh, who would look after them. And and <laughs> and it just wasn't. You don't know what you're talking about right now, Yancy. I'm just yeah. letting you know. They've, watched, they've, seen, they've, they've probably seen Silicon Valley, like that. That character's in Silicon Valley, but it was just a very different internet. The tools, the tools were you had to be more technical, right? A lot of the tools that have been built over the last 10 years are about like pushing the techno the technological side more and more to the background and letting people you know there's like no code websites today right but that that didn't exist then so it was a 
a serious undertaking for three non-technical co-founders uh, to do. I mean, that you know, a lot of what we had to do early on was yes, scoping the idea, um, sharing it with the community of artists and creative people who we saw as its primary users, and like getting the gut check: would you do this or not? But executing that was was a real challenge, and that's where we struggled for for several years. It was like four years of trying and failing to launch from working with external partners that didn't work out and just making a lot of rookie mistakes that fortunate for us, they were before, you know, anyone knew who knew who we were. So we didn't lose in reputation. We gained an experience, but we did lose money. We did, you know, we did have some challenging times, but, you know, I think the things that allowed that perseverance, one was, just being convinced that the idea was sound. And at the time, crowdfunding did not exist online. Like there have been one-off experiments, but there weren't platforms where you could go and propose an idea, people put up small amounts of money, like that just space didn't exist yet. And so there was just a, a deep belief that however hard things were, that the idea was worth it. And that if it wasn't us, it was gonna be somebody else. So there was like, to a large degree, I always felt in service to this idea. And like, we discovered this idea, but discovered an idea that already existed without us, right? And so we were like, we're the ones who, who were meant to shepherd this. You know, you're like the ones who find the diamond in the mine and it's your job to look after it until, you know, until it finds its place in the world. And so that, you know, that's helpful. That's helpful as just like a, it, it compels you even when you don't really want, you know, when, when you feel tired, when you feel discouraged, because you just think, well, man, maybe this is a hard moment, but like the, the idea is still worth it. And I still had a day job during a lot of that too. So I was gun shy about making that leap to like being a full-time entrepreneur because I'd always been a worker bee. You know, the idea of like being out on my own was intimidating. I didn't, I, I don't come from money. I didn't have savings. And so I was actually the last one to like leave my job to go all the way. And I, I remember the emotions and the feeling of that time very clearly. And I, I you know, I, I know what, how, how scary that, that moment is. And I, I think it's important to mention that because sometimes you hear success stories and, and um, everybody assumes that, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but that not everybody sees all the struggles that, that led to that point. I mean, you started in 2009, right, right after the financial crisis. You mentioned there was a few years there that definitely um, you had some challenges. But as we all know, Kickstarter really grew and was this powerful idea that sparked so many different kind of conversations in and outside of the crowdfunding movement. But even with those pressures to grow, once Kickstarter took off and was this fabulous idea, it was really important to you and your co-founders that you weren't necessarily responding to all of those pressures in, mm. in, in ways that didn't reflect your intent. Can you talk about mm. kind of how that happened, some of the things you faced and, and how hard that was at that, at that point? You know, you're getting pressure from investors, mm. even from some of your people posting ideas on your platform about, about mm. what you should be doing next. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, a success scenario is one where things start getting away from you a little bit, you know, a little bit, right? It's like it it exceeds your expectations, you know, it it, it moves beyond where you had imagined. And, um, you know, I mean, we, we had a very strong idea about what it should and should not be from the beginning. You know, we 
Perry had dreamed up the idea for crowdfunding, but we um, very specifically wanted to apply it just to help creative projects, people bringing new ideas off the ground. So we excluded charity because we, th we felt like a place where people post creative ideas and are proud to share ideas is not a place where also people are raising money for medical bills or things that have a different emotional feel, right? Mm -hmm. And so we had it like we thought for this to be thing it's meant to be, it has to have this certain spirit, has to represent this culture. And for something like that, did you think about that first or did it happen and you have to make the decision sort of real time? We thought we thought about it. I think we didn't know. You know, you sort of have instincts. We didn't have a lot of rules to start. We had this like implicit notion of what we wanted it to be. And then we'd let, you just sort of let your gut guide you from there. You know, Kickstarter, always, there's always been a lot of rules about what's allowed on the site. But I've always told people that, you know, if you and I were to look at 10 projects, like we would agree on which 10 should be allowed on Kickstarter and which should not. And, and sometimes it's hard to put into words, but there is a right. gut feel of like, Yes, this feels a part of this, or this feels this feels off in some way. Um, but what you find is that, uh, especially as you start to succeed, you know your flag gets raised and people start reaching out. People are interested. People want to talk, and there's this illusion of progress where it's like, oh, there there could be these partnerships. This person's interested, and and especially early on, you have to have those conversations just to know. You're, you're just learning information. But to a large degree, when people start coming to you, wanting you to like evolve your thing to fit their needs, it's a distraction. And so that's a lot of what happens. As, yeah. as it starts to hit a certain threshold, then it's like, I mean, we heard from giant companies that were like, I mean, giant, like some of the most famous companies in the world today reached out being like, we would be interested in launching a product on Kickstarter. You just have to change this thing and do this. And, you know, we were just always said, no, just like, we feel like it's important to be this, to stay true to this ideal, to keep the product focused on as the use case we're thinking about. And just to, to try to, you know, when you have such, so much inbound interest, you have to have a, a firm filter for yourself to know what's worth responding to and what's and what's not. Because it's just, I experience it to this day, like you can spend all day responding to things and reacting to what's happening and you yeah. actually achieve nothing. Right. You actually I mean, achieve we're absolutely seeing nothing. That, we're seeing that right now, right? Um, especially for companies that haven't been as intentional about, about their purpose. But at what point do you think these these set of unspoken ideals really sort of translated into th these are our values? Because um, I can imagine at some point every employee in the company didn't necessarily agree, e even if the co-founders were were aligned. So what was that? What was that progression? When did it really crystallize in your mind? It was clear among the three the three co-founders in the beginning. I don't think we ever wrote anything down. But we all came from like music backgrounds and we, we all had similar ideals about like selling out is lame. You know, you want to like matter. We want to matter over the long term. You know, we, we were there to support artists who were like, nobody cares about artists. Like we're, we're trying to stand up for people that like are totally taken for granted. And so those were just sort of implicit. And, and I would say the first probably first 15 employees that got hired all like had a similar worldview and we just sort of found each other in a way that felt quite natural. Uh, but you do reach a point where you have to articulate. And honestly, I think we kicked the can down the road longer than we should have Be because as co-founders, we had such a strong worldview and we're very convincing in our worldview. It shaped how we made decisions. But what it also did is it created a bottleneck. 
It created a bottleneck of all decisions then having to go through us, right? Right. Because because you are the as by making yourself the holder of the truth, by making yourself a god within your organization, you then create a bottleneck of your own. And so you run into this problem of people then are not empowered to act and, and you things slow down. Right. Um, so the, the ideal, the ideal um, culture to have and which Kickstarter got closer to over time, especially after becoming a public benefit corporation. But I think the ideal culture is one where the values are clear to, are, are so clearly laid out and are actionable that you almost have what I would call a post-permission organization, where actually everyone knows what's critical, everyone knows what the goals are, everyone knows what's right or wrong. And by virtue of that, everyone has permission to act on uh, behalf of the company. And a company like Netflix, this is essentially how they run. Um, you know, like activist groups, this is how they run, where they're like, uh, our success is so critical, we can't waste time like in meetings, about meetings. So mm -hmm. that is the place to get to. And that happens through through articulating values and, and ideals to drive the company. And those are the, the, the other reason those are critical is because without those, the company's inherent power structure will decide everything, right? Whoever the highest paid person is, whoever, whoever right. is highest on the totem pole will make the decision. And it's very difficult to overrule those decisions. But in an organization where values are clearly laid out, then theoretically and practically, if it is truly a sound organization, the lowest paid person should be able to raise their hand and call out the highest paid person if they're doing something that is not in line with the strategy or values. They should at least be able to have a critical conversation. And that's how organizations get better. That's how you get smarter. That's how you learn. Organizations that fail to do that, that just rely on a power structure, that rely on founders being God that rely on that kind of like only some people know the truth of things, you're going to struggle. Right. You're going to run into a lot of challenges that over over time. I mean, this is it's a, a different version of the equity conversation we're hearing right now. You know, while everybody is accountable for a company's values, at the end of the day, the structure might not reflect that. The decision-making power might not reflect that. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you took this to the point where you wrote your book, you really laid out kind of your philosophy on bentoism, which I definitely want, want people to hear because I want to talk a little bit more about that as well, and also sort of how you do some of that work now. And much of it, I will say, you know, this journey you've been on, I can only imagine the types of tough decisions you're faced with when incentives are thrown at you, when when a huge company is, is coming and there's a different type of financial return. How do you sort of center yourself from a mental health perspective to really be strong enough mentally for this work, right? Because it's more than just being everybody's about their purpose in the good times. It's when it gets tough um, that it's harder for people to make that decision. Yeah, well, I think one, you have to, I mean, you have to be forgiving towards yourself a little bit and just know that it's going to be tougher. Like, you know, I always thought about, you know, we really focused on operating in the black. And I thought about that as like, you know, if we're facing this existential question of like needing to make payroll every month, like we're going to make terrible decisions. How, when, what universe do you make a good decision when you're facing like, you know, death of some right. kind 
on, I mean, on this, this is this is sort of the core argument about people living in poverty. Yeah. You know, a lot of people who aren't close to it, people will say, oh, they're just making such bad decisions. And it's sort of like if you've never been in a decision where you have to, you know, in, in the situation where you have to choose between rent or food or, you know, just basic life life needs that people take for granted. The only thing it looks like from the outside is a poor decision. So yeah. it's it's a yeah. great point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, you have to humble yourself in front of, I think, in front of everything you do, right? You just have to kind of respect the challenge of it and and be real about it. So I always thought about it as like, how do I, I already know it's hard to make a good decision. How do I remove the ways that make it even harder as much as possible? So like, yeah, having some sort of stability like that. I think early on, a lot of it, you know, a, a lot of strength comes from co-founders, right? It comes from being able to look at someone else who's having a similar emotional experience and, you know, you always have those seesaw moments. One person's up, the other one's down. You yeah. know, you got to help each other out. So there's a lot of that that's there. You know, I would find, I ended up creating the the idea of the bento as a, as a way, which I'll get to in a second, as a way of like really crystallizing and holding on to the values uh, and not letting go of them. You know, it, it's it's hard to keep these things in mind on a consistent basis because we, you know, it's very easy to to switch into a place of operating from fear, and yes. and that and that and that can come from um, competition. That can come from not even competition, but someone else experiencing success. You know, when we when we base our identity off of like, you know, I won that award or I graduated from that school or accelerator plan or I got this headline. Um, those are wonderful achievements that we should absolutely celebrate. And like I have many meaningful moments like those. But if we define our identity by them, then those become very shaky because other people are going to get those things too. Right. And, and and if your identity is is based on I'm the one who has these things, then when someone else gets it, even though it has no real bearing on you, that will create an emotional reaction that will make you feel broken, that will make you feel less worthy, and that will make you want to maybe do something that isn't wise, do something that isn't in line with you. So I, I feel like, a, you know, a lot of that, those signals and ways that we base our identity are, you know, they have quite an impact on us. And, you know, for me, my identity had been Kickstarter based. I'd say up until Kickstarter, I spent my life, every conversation trying to protest that I was special without someone knowing that's what I was doing. That was the, my intention in every conversation was to prove that I was special. Uh, and then- You're special, Yancy. You're very yeah. special. Well then, and then the greatest gift in the world that came with Kickstarter is just having just enough of an ego scratch that I could let go of that feeling, that I could finally shake it off. And it immediately made me like, if I could wish for one thing for every person in the world, it would just be to achieve enough of that feeling they could let go of that, just so they could drop it because it was such a weight weight that I carry. But so, you know, there's so, there, yeah, there's just all these things that that we're having to, uh, scripts that we're having to break through and, and push through. And that's so much of uh, of being a leader. And so, you know, there's books that I turn to a lot too. I, I thought like very classic books by Peter Drucker, who's like the old school business guru. Um, and he wrote a book called Managing Oneself. That's just all about how to deal with emotions as a leader. Just awesome, awesome, so wise. And another one called The Effective Executive, mm. which similarly is just sort of like, here's your job, here's not your job, you know? Right. And, and, and because I think a danger, I mean, as a founder, you have to do everything. We often mistake like being good at our jobs or doing everything. 
but actually being good at our jobs is knowing what is our job and knowing what is not our job. And so there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot there, but the emotional plaque of being in a leadership role, it, it does add up. And for me, you know, by my last year as CEO of Kickstarter, I left three years ago, almost exactly, you know, I'd reached a point of such exhaustion that I couldn't even recognize it. But, you know, I, it would only show up in like, before I would have a pitch meeting going to pitch someone on using Kickstarter, which would be like the 13th year in a row that I'm doing meetings like that all the time. The level of exhaustion I felt inside myself was like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't look away from. And there was a day where I was supposed to go to work and my wife found me standing at our front door. Like I hadn't left. She's like, what are you doing here? And I felt so tired. I couldn't open the door to leave. And all I could say to her was, I can't go be that person today. And and to me, the weight, like I felt like I had to represent a certain thing. I was authentically myself, but authentically like the superhuman version of myself, you know, and it, these things, these things add up. And, and that, yeah, I, I thank you yeah. for talking about that. Cause I'm sure there's so many founders who wake up many days like that, but they feel like they can't say no. Um, and while they might not be up to it, they feel like they're letting so many people down. And how do you balance that, that weight? I learned that you would create, a, I would create a rhythm. I would create a rhythm of like, it'd be like three months full on, And then I'd give myself like four or five days, you know, a long weekend where I just, I would only rest. And, you know, but I could feel, I could feel when I was running low in my cycle, right? I would, I would be getting shorter with people. I would, you know, be getting more impatient. And, and eventually I could recognize that I was feeling those things because I was tired and not because everyone else was suddenly like screwing up. Like there's a part of it that's like, why is everybody so dumb all of a sudden? And you're like, no, you're just tired <laughs> Your and hungry. Your didn't tap you on the shoulder and say like, yeah, see, I think it's time for your four days again. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I was fortunate to have some people around me who were honest, who could be honest in that way. But We all it, need that. It's hard. It's hard because as a, as a co-founder in your company, again, you have a godlike status that is powerful and, and dangerous for you. Well, I think one of the things that you've done with Bentoism is sort of make it simple for people to think about now versus later. And and while it's not the the perfect solution, what it does is a simple way for you to kind of just filter, okay, how do I I take this decision I need to make right this moment through a number of different lenses? Um, So I'd love for you to walk that through because I want to make sure we talk about that. Let's let's, let's do some screen sharing here uh, through the magic of technology. All right. Hopefully this is showing up for people. Um, a couple of years ago, I was thinking a lot about the question of self-interest. Adam Smith sort of in defining capitalism uh, talks about how you trust people to operate according to their self-interest and, and sort of game theories based on people maximizing their self-interest. And I was thinking about this a, a couple of years ago, and I wanted to try to draw self-interest. And so I, I imagined the hockey stick graph, right? The chart where uh, whatever the self-interest is that we want, it's growing so fast, the line slopes up and to the right. And, you know, for me as a CEO, for us as leaders, like this is kind of the, the ultimate, right? This is what we want to see. This is the ultimate of success. But one day I realized when I drew this that this is just a small slice of a much larger picture, 
because the x-axis representing time, uh, it goes from now as far into the future as we might want to draw. And the y-axis measuring self-interest, fame, power, money, it also keeps going because as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. The difference between being a solo entrepreneur and having employees is huge or being single and having children. So as our self-interest grows, so does our responsibilities. It goes from me to us. So actually we can demarcate out there being four dimensions of self-interest that we should be thinking about. There's now me, what I want to need right now. This is how we think of self-interest today. There's future me, what the older, wiser version of me would like for me to do. That person becomes real or not real every day based on the choices I make. There's now us of our friends and family, the people we care most about. And finally, there's future us, that same group of people, but 20 years from now, our kids and the world they'll inherit. And every decision we make leaves a footprint in each of these spaces. They are all shaped by all of our choices. Our now us is impacted, the future us is impacted, our future selves are impacted. Now, the day I drew this, I thought, what is this a picture of? And next to it, I wrote a very simple description, beyond near-term orientation. This is a graph of beyond near-term orientation. And I suddenly realized that that was an acronym for bento. And I thought of the bento box, the Japanese packed lunch with four or five compartments and a lid that lets you carry a variety of dishes without anything getting spoiled. And the bento honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full, that way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So bentoism is the same idea, but for our values and our self-interest, a guide to making decisions where we're not just filling ourselves up on now me, but we're leaving space for our future selves and for others. And so this very simple idea is also a kind of a UI for making choices. So we can imagine a smoker asking their bento whether they should quit smoking. And to use this, they very simply just ask each of these boxes uh, and see what they have to say. So a smoker's now us, which thinks about their family and their friends, says, yes, you should quit. Like, your family hates it. The smoker's future us which imagines the world their children will inherit, says, yes, I should quit. Like, what if my kids smoke because of me? The smoker's future me says, yes, I want there to be a future me. You should quit. But the smoker's now me says that it should keep smoking because it's addicted to nicotine. Quitting's going to suck. And that now me has a rational point of view based on a limited perspective, right? And so this makes it a hard voice to reason with. It has a point. And so where the world is today is we're trapped with a view of really only seeing now me as the only rational part of our self-interest. We can only justify decisions that look good here. We have trouble incorporating the future. We don't think about each other as well. And this is the reason why so much of our society has been in decay. So what I think about instead is developing an active awareness where you know what's going on in each of these bentos for you and you seek to make decisions that light up every aspect of what's important. So I've used this process and in, in, in workshops I teach to identify my own values. My now me wants to show people the matrix, wants to connect ideas. My future me says don't sell out. My now us wants me to be hyper present with my friends and a future us is imagining a better matrix. And so this is like a, a compass for me to make choices and a way for me to think about what is a good decision for me and what is a bad decision for me.
and I could go a lot farther, but we can now talk and I have more slides if we want to go into other aspects of that. But yeah, that, that's the basic idea. And Nancy, I think I lost your video, but why? Oh, there you go. You know, what? what's interesting about your future self, and I know you mentioned it kind of changes all the time, right? But something like, you know, don't sell out. You mentioned that was key at Kickstarter. No. Um, does that mean something different to you today than it meant back then? Yeah, probably. I, I would say so. I, I would say so. You know, I think that, I mean, I, it's even don't sell out has even changed for me since coming up with the bento. You know, I talk about how that's a voice that had made me, it just made me like irrationally angry at sort of anything involving money before. And, and then I came to realize actually this is just a kind of a bouncer looking out for me, but in, in kind of an immature way. And that actually by getting to know myself, by seeing these dimensions of myself, like this fear or this discomfort went away because I sort of, I better, I better understood it. You know, I, I do my bento every week. Um, I do it in a way that I, I, I like draw a blank one and I ask, how should I use my energy this week? I just think next seven days, and I'm kind of asking for each part of myself for its to-do list. So the now me to-do list is easy. It's always like, you know, get the car fixed, do the things, you know, do the work stuff. The future me list is interesting. The future me list will be like, you know, uh, it'll tell me things like, you know, don't worry about Twitter so much. Like, <laughs> read this book. Like, try to deepen your understanding a little bit. Like, slow down, you know, express love to others, like advice like that. My now us will tell me, like, who are the people in my life that are important to me? Who do I need to be most in touch with right now? And my future us is imagining me to consider, like, Imagine my choices really do have a butterfly effect into my child's life. Imagine a choice I make today affects them, or I'm modeling a choice they will make 20 years from now. What would I do differently? And, and it seems maybe absurd to ask that, but at a certain point, I thought, if I'm not doing this now, if I'm not making this choice now, when, when am I expecting this is going to happen, right? And so I, I feel like I have a lot more control over how I use my time, how I express my priorities, and just a, my own awareness of what I'm doing but it, the voice does change. It does change. Like depending on what's going on in the world, depending on what's happening with me, it changes. And I, and I feel like by staying regularly in touch with it, um, I'm just, I'm just always in a place of, 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 of active awareness of being quite actively aware of what I'm doing uh, and why I'm doing it. And, yeah, and awareness and, is always kind of half the battle, right? Because, no, you, you know, know, when you explain sort of those, um, the choices between now and later, most of us are like, oh, yeah, we all know that. Um, the issue is you're, you're not constantly thinking about it or, 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 or making decisions based on it. Um, yeah. You talked about your workshop. How do you bring this to life for people? You know, individual step in. What, what are some of the cool things you do? So I started when COVID happened. Uh, I was, I've been doing this like Sunday morning ritual of writing in my bento for several months. Um, and I just thought I'll just start doing it on Zoom and, um, you know, just doing it with people online. And, and so I've done that now for, for 10 straight weeks. And, and it's always two parts. There's one part where I have people close their eyes and I sort of have us look around and picture our future selves, picture our us. I, I, for the us, it's fun. I imagine you to imagine your family, your coworkers, your friends, your pets, everyone you care about, and to cram everyone together on a couch and imagine they're all laughing at how silly it is to be so close. And at that moment, they're laughing. You take a Polaroid and those are and that's your us. And then we just spend like 30 seconds looking across everyone's faces and just 
picturing them, feeling them, you know. Uh, but so we journal, we journal and write down things we want to do. And then I create exercises. A lot of them are interactive. One of them that we do is I'll have four people break people up into breakouts of four. Each person says a real life question they're facing at that moment. And the four of them vote on whose question they'll talk about. And then everyone helps that person. And they talk it through from a bento perspective. What do your values say? How might you navigate this? And people are just there for each other. In yesterday's session, I had people go through a process to imagine five other career paths other than the one they're currently on. And then to pretend they are that one of those career paths and sort of method act it with other people and just get a feel for what does it feel like to say I'm a famous podcaster or, you know, I own a flower shop and for people to get a chance to just step into, you know, alternate realities of themselves, step into different parts of themselves. And through that, just get more of a familiarity with what they really want and and what they care about. And, And the goal that we're always working towards is I say we're we're trying to be coherent. And by coherent, I mean like in integrity with who we are at our deepest level. Because it's, it's my belief that when we act coherently, when all four areas of the bento are lighting up, when we're acting in a way that's authentic to who we are as people, like we are by far our most impactful, by far our best. Like when we're in a flow state, like that, that we're, we're crushing it. The question is, how do you get there, right? Maybe we know how to get in a flow state through exercise or music or nature, things that are taking us out of ourselves. But how do you get into a flow state within yourself? And I think that the bento is a compass to that. It's a sense of like, when you're doing these kinds of things, that is when you are lighting yourself up, when, when the work feels natural, where, where putting in immense effort feels like no effort, and where somehow things work out for you. And, and so what does it mean to get there and not just randomly discovering it like you, you, know, you just had a perfect swing that day on the golf course? But like, how do you have that perfect swing every time? You practice, you need frameworks. And so for the bento, for me, it's like I fall short of what I want for myself all the time, all the time. And so the way I love myself is by giving a kind of a scaffolding, a tool that reminds me, reminds me what I want to live up to and doesn't just rely on my brain, which I know, I know the good and bad of my brain, relying on that, you know, to do it on its own. We, we need help with these things. And so to me, this is a tool like a screwdriver. You know, it's as, it's as basic as anything else we need to get things done that are hard to do on our own. And I mean, that probably is the the hardest step, right? Just starting to do that. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting through COVID and even just the recent events, people have been either taking time or making time to do more of this self-reflection. Even for you who've been practicing bento for, for a while now, did your bento change kind of from the start of the 10 weeks to today? Yeah, I, there was a, I forgot about this, but yeah, there was a moment. It was like my first week doing my weekly bento after the, the lockdown began. And normally when I would do the weekly bento, I would start with now me when I would like be generating what I should do. Now me was always the easiest place. And that week after we'd been locked in, when I looked at now me, I had no idea what to write. I had no idea what now me wanted. But when I looked at now us, which thought of my family, I have a, a four-year-old child who I you know, my wife and I now homeschool every day. When I looked at now us, my now us like was just pouring. It was, it was like, I had so much to do. And I, I immediately had this recognition of, oh, wow, my, my default orientation has shifted from me to us in this moment. Like, I can't think about me. Like me, I come last. Like I have to think about us first. So that, that like was a very visceral 
reaction. And I needed that, right? I needed that because before then, I spent the first week feeling sorry for myself, right? Feeling sorry for myself that I that I'm raising my that I have to raise my child, uh, but but feeling but feeling right, but feeling beleaguered by it, thinking about the me. And then I have this, you know, then I have this moment where I just recognize, hey, maybe that was the story before, bro. But like, things right. are different now. Things are different, and you you can you can whine about it, or you can just like live it, you know. And and that was just. Yeah, you just got to get over it. So you still have, I still have all the whiny emotions, you know, it's just more that you you maybe accelerate through them. and maybe, You can sort of process it faster. Yeah, you can talk yourself down versus, I mean, what, can I ask you, I mean, you know, what-, what Sure, would, and I want to remind, I'm happy to dominate the rest of our time together, but I want to remind everybody too, they can submit questions and I'll, and I'll tee those up, but yes, please. What was, what, just what was your moment? Did you have a moment of pause, reflection, change when COVID began? How, how does that change how you think about your work and, and what you're doing? I would say the the more recent events and social unrest probably impacted me more. You know, at the start of COVID, um, it's sort of like, okay, we can all adjust. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a position of privilege where in my role, I can work from home. You know, my kids were quickly home and, and yes, you know, we're sort of figuring out how do we get the kids what they need, but we can make it happen. So mm-hmm. I think over the course of that, when you realize it's not just a couple weeks, it's going to be longer Then you know, then you sort of sort of step back and say, all right, how, how do we figure this out? And or to, your, to the point of your us, you know, mm-hmm. maybe when I took that snapshot immediately, there were only a few people there. And <laughs> when right, I took it right, a few right. weeks later, right, you start reaching out to those people. I, I reached out to the people I was with on 9-11 and all these different moments mm-hmm. in my life that I just haven't touched base with in a while, quite mm-hmm. frankly. So that was that was part of it. But I think with everything happening in the past couple of weeks and I have three children, two boys and, and one daughter. And, you know, we my husband and I think a lot about how we have to raise them as young, young African-Americans, which is different than what non-African-Americans think through. And just having to have that conversation yet once again, but it was different this time. Usually I'm good at compartmentalizing, especially given what I do. It was hard. It was hard. I definitely had to to take myself a bit offline for a few days. And then after that, I was like, you know what? Like, we have a great moment. Personally, Comcast has has a great moment to figure out how we can step up. Um, in fact, this Monday, we lost a, we launched a $100 million commitment to social justice and equity, re-looking at all of our practices, working with some key organizations outside. We're admitting that we have no answers yet. We're not assuming we have this licked, even though we have a record to stand on in this space. But it was great to be able to pour all that energy into, you know, a team of people that could pull that together. So that that's what it was like for me. <laughs> Can I ask when you say talking to your family about it was different this time? Yeah. You know, and you're talking about, you know, obviously this moment now is different, but you're talking about right after the, you know, the murder ha- is like, in what way yeah. was it different this time? Can I ask what you mean by that? Well, one, for for them, you know, they weren't around during Rodney King. They weren't around sort of, you know, the the, the iPhone and video everywhere is just sort of right there. That, that's their kind of native experience. And so the number of people that they know and their friends and that are texting them that are um, seeing this and reacting to it, that was this was the first time they were experiencing it like that. Mm-hmm. So even as they were hearing things from my husband and I about 
it's different for us. It does not mean you're less worthy, like you're everything you mm. should be. But that was the first time they saw it at scale. Mm. So that's what I, I would say was different to explain it to them in that moment um, that, you know, most people in the world are good, but there's 400 years of right structural racism that can't be changed in a, in a moment. So that was that was tougher. Thank you. For, yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And how does it I mean, and, and, you know, part of your job as leading the foundation doesn't I mean, it does involve working and, you know, being in a helpful capacity, being, you know, but like how. Absolutely. What, what does this kind of work do you think look like now? Do you think it's. You know, I think we have to approach it differently this time. And it's starting with a lot of conversations, making sure people understand kind of the nature of these issues and what are the things within our control um, that we can do internally. You know, we sort of, we can make Comcast and BC Universal sort of a better place, but we're not immune to everything that happens outside. You know, you sort of have to acknowledge that up front and then sort of really do some deep thinking about what that means, what that means internally. So well, I'm just uh, thinking about how, I mean, there's a story, I think it was even two weeks ago about Google de-emphasizing their DNI uh, efforts internally, right? Like they were rolling their sort of soft pedaling those kinds of things, right? And now it's- Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like in, there, there's ebbs and flows. I think people want things to be different this time. Enough people want things to be different this time, but they're, right, they're skeptics just like anything else. Maybe there'll be some cool ideas on Kickstarter that people- But it'll be hard and it will take everybody. Um, and I think that's more clear this time in my mind, in my conversations than it was in the past. You know, it always felt like someone else's issue, and I think people are willing to be accountable for it. But we'll, we'll I mean, get through it. Those, in my book, I write about, you know, there's a lot about large-scale changes and how they happen. And one of my theories after doing a lot of research was that people actually don't change their minds that often. <laughs> that, that change right. largely happens by people dying. And that people, and there's actually a paper that came out this just this week showing that, like, people who are born around the same time strongly correlate their worldviews, right? And that and that generally, like when you're born, shapes how you see the world. But we're also seeing polling now in terms of public opinion of Black Lives Matter, that this is what appears to be one of those rare cases where public opinion is shifting in a massive way quite quite quickly. Yeah, and globally too, which yeah, globally, is different. Yeah. In fact, one of the questions that just got teed up is, is how could Bento be applied in getting sort of widespread support for something something like this for addressing social justice? You know, how how would you think about that, whether it was a big group or a team situation? Yeah, well I, I would say that um, you know a lot a lot of the challenges we have today is, are is based on a belief that now me is kind of all that matters and that it's our job to only look out for ourselves. We could think of each of us as like we're running around in a little cubicle. And if we ever run into anyone else, it's a conflict, you know, so we just try not to see each other. And so like, that's a view of the, that's kind of the view of people that our world today is, is built on. Right. And so in that worldview, everyone's a competitor, everyone, you know, it's, it's a de default adversarial position. And that notion of there being an us, um, is it, just lost and it's just incompatible with that perspective. And so I think that's a worldview that I don't think creates racism, but might create the quote unquote good moderates who don't do anything. 
Right. Right. The good right. moderates who like, I didn't step on anybody's toes today. So why are you looking at me? Right. And based on how our world tells us like we are as individuals, it's a defensible argument for someone to have, hey, like I'm just an individual or all just individuals, like whatever, whatever. But we know that that is not satisfactory. And we know that we are organisms on this planet and that, you know, organisms, you know, we're all social creatures. And so I think that seeing that us is a real thing and seeing that we do have a responsibility to one another. And, you know, COVID has taught us that as well. Um, that I think that 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 is the like that is a foundation for a a different way of relating to one another. Now, I've been thinking a lot about what does the Bento say about white supremacy, right? A lot of what I talk about is the need for people to create coherence, like self-coherence, being an integrity with who you are. Not an easy thing to do. Um, People assume only rich people can create coherence. Not at all. Actually, like every major religion would say, if you're poor, you are far more likely to achieve coherence because materialism is a distraction from the truth. But it's especially hard for, say, a person of color in America to create coherence when there are systems and actual human beings that are built their identity around destroying their possibility of security, destroying the possibility of, of upward mobility. And, right. you know, how to rectify that, how, how to rectify that, that, that level of like an identity that is based on a, a destruction of another identity, you know, is, is such a deeply, is such a deeply rooted question and, and such a deeply rooted problem. Um, I mean, even that simple question of how you address now me. Yeah. Um, and how big is your us? You know, yeah. all of those things are sort of captured captured in that as well. Well, it's, it's just, it's, it is amazing to see the coalition that's raising their voices now. And they are people that are, you know, people always put up the quote of like from, from Nazi Germany, when they came for the Jews, I said nothing when they came, you know, whatever. People have like put that quote on the internet forever. No one's really acted on it. This is a case where people are really like, I am, I'm coming for my brothers and sisters of the human race, you know, and like, this is, this is wrong. And, and it's extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary that, that people are, are, are lifting their voices and at a moment of extraordinary peril, right? Extraordinary peril. That shows a profound shift in how, in how they identify their self-interest, right? Because from a rational now me self-interest perspective, this is all totally irrational. You're, you're endangering yourself, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But right, but people are seeing no, I, I'm a member of, of another tribe. I'm a, I'm a member of another tribe that we forget about, but we, you know, but we're all here. We're, we're all together. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. If you'd like to be part of the Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs accelerator powered by Techstars, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes and apply today. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with editing and mixing by Max Graham and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs>